0: Welcome to TBC Extra, a weekly podcast of our Sunday sermon and a little extra. I am Teresa Jenkins, the communications director here at Topeka Bible Church.
1: And I'm Jason Brent, the children's pastor at Topeka Bible Church. And we're glad you're here. And now for a little extra.
0: Hi, welcome to week number one
1: of numbers. Numero uno or eins as they like to say in <laughs> D-Deutschland.
0: Uno, eins on. Oh. is that that's the French?
1: Sure. Let's I don't go know much with it. French.
0: Um if you know how to oui. say one in other languages, yes. Please comment. <laughs> also we're going to talk about numbers today. Yes, not just the series, but I thought we might talk about numbers like math our favorite (laughs) subject from school i was a communications major yes the required um i started with college algebra but my Mm -hmm. grandpa died like the first week of my freshman year and (laughs) that was hard and so i was like yeah no i'm gonna do college math and i got done with that and i was like close the book done with math And then had a the child later. So
1: I, w- I was a Christian education you? major in college. Yes. And there was no math required for teaching kids about the Bible. However, we got accredited halfway through my process at Manhattan Christian College. The college got accredited, which therefore meant I had to take college algebra. And that was a struggle, let me tell you. But I did it my last semester of my senior year. <laughs> I waited to the very end, which is probably not the best strategy Take the highest form of math you've ever taken, the farthest away from any math you've ever taken. Because in high school, I didn't take any extra math classes. Right. Now, Why? My, would you?
0: Why would anyone do that?
1: My math, my number struggle, my math struggle was very, very strong. I remember in eighth grade, spending, I being grounded all spring break because I got like a forty-two percent on a math test, maybe even lower than that. And my dad did not think that I could have done that without trying to get that low of a score and when he asked me in the book to show him problems I know how to do, I didn't know anything in that book because I just had been skating by by bringing Kleenex boxes for extra credit and doing... <laughs> I remember writing like three- to five-page reports, which I was good at English, so it worked out good, like on Pythagoras good. and like Balanced all out. these things I just do this research. <laughs> I hey, do a bunch
0: of extra credit. That's smart, using the system but to your But I
1: studied for a whole week on that test, and... I really got forty or less percent on the first time around. They let me said my math teacher said I could retake it. And I she gave me some extra stuff to work on and I worked on it all spring break. How'd that work out? And I retook it. And I got a 62%. And okay. I was so discouraged. But she said, Well, that's a lot better than the first time. And I'm like, This is the best I can do. Like, this is the best I can do. It, like, passes, is right? can do. <laughs> it was very dis- disheartening to me. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I, even when I was younger, like, why in first grade they would have us doing algebra, I have no idea. But we'd have like halves of cookies. And okay. it's like... Like fractions? Yeah. And it's like a whole cookie's 10, so this is a little bit eaten at 7. What's the missing piece of the cookie? Okay. And I just, I just could not figure out how much uh, how much of the cookie was eaten. <laughs> I don't
0: know. Was that part <laughs> like, of the why cookie why would anyone bigger? stop
1: eating when they had just not yes. eaten the whole cookie? I would have been able to do that math. If this but... were a
0: word problem, I could answer it. <laughs> Who would leave a fraction of a cookie on the plate?
1: Not yeah. me. No, yeah. no. no.
0: I, we were talking before we started recording about things from our child childhood that you know we were yes kind of protected from yes by our parents well-intentioned parents didn't want us to get uh,
1: exposed to things that were not
0: appropriate for us right and I it made me think of math because I was probably I wish in, my
1: parents would have protected me from math that, <laughs> that would have been smart been awesome. yeah
0: <laughs> second or third grade I went to public school and here in Topeka and there was a small group of parents and I I don't know anything about them I assume they were a group of Christian parents mm-hmm. who were coming before the, the, the PTA or the school board or whatever it was and saying, we don't want our kids reading this, this series of books that had just been brought into the school that mm-hmm. were great stories about people like from history. Oh. They were great biographies with, I can't remember what they were called, but they had Fabulous illustrations, great stories like Louis Pasteur and Marie Curie, Mm -hmm. and we don't (laughs) want, I didn't know that it was about the books, though, at the time. We don't want our children learning these values. I remember hearing that. Because at the time, if you said values, to mm-hmm. me I'm thinking place value in math. Oh. It's the only context in which I'd really
1: that stuck value, out. I'm like, yeah.
0: why don't we I mean, isn't the tens place the tens place for everybody?
1: Well like, in Louis, Louis past years biography the the tens place is really the hundredth place. So you okay. know like, I don't know. No, I don't know. Maybe Dewey Decimal is <laughs> Dewey Decimal <laughs> system. Yeah, I wasn't very good with that one. So either. that was really confusing <laughs> to
0: second or third grade great Teresa williams at the time but now i look back and i was like oh that's what they were talking about <laughs> that's funny it didn't take me that long to figure it out but yeah so different Basically, kind of values
1: anything with numbers
0: yeah i like it that be how Begum's connor clothes. said though
1: <laughs> that in hebrew we would call it in the wilderness yes and that's that's a better that title to me than numbers yeah. just more i don't know
0: it's more engaging
1: <laughs> yeah in the wilderness into the wilderness
0: yeah well let 's get into the wilderness by hearing this sermon
2: morning'm really glad that you could be with us this morning, and uh, I love getting the service started with baby dedications and things like that. It's just fantastic to see how the Lord is using every single generation to serve his kingdom um, and so we're excited for for Nora. Um, so we are we are starting a new series in the Book of Numbers, and uh, I got to tell you, I don't know that there's uh, something that gets me more excited than trying to convince you that you should care about the Book of Numbers. Um, it really really juices me up um, because I love I love these kind of books. You know, we did um, we did Leviticus last spring and had a good time there. Um, talked a lot about skin diseases, sacrifices, wave offerings, and things like that. But ultimately, God uses all of those things uh, for his good and for ours as well. So we're going through the book of Numbers, and uh, this past year, I read a book um, along with the book of Numbers. It was called Over the Edge of the World, and it was about Ferdinand Magellan's uh, circumnavigation across the globe. Back in 1519, uh, he and about 270 people set out five ships. They were going to try and find the Pacific route to the Spice Islands, and along the way, they um, had a lot of trouble. Uh, Ferdinand died, first of all. He didn't even make it. Uh, there was mutiny, there was murder, there was stealing, there was uh, a whole lot of storms, a lot of bad things happened. And um, about three years later, one of the five ships sort of, you know, crawled into port, technically having made it all the way around the globe, um, but they only had about 30 of their 270 people that they had set out with. And that reminds me of the book of Numbers. Why? Because the book of Numbers is about a group of people, the Israelites, who are going to set out with a lot of promise. And uh, this morning, we're gonna be looking at the first two chapters of that book. But along the way, along these 40 years in the desert where they're gonna be walking, um, the Israelites are going to go through a lot of troubles, things they're gonna bring upon themselves. And when we get to the end of the book of Numbers, it's going to look a lot different than how we started out. So, But just to make sure that we're all kind of oriented to the right spot, Okay, so Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers, and then we Deuteronomy. So we go from the creation account to Exodus, right, which is where um, God redeems his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, and then we get the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. We have Leviticus, which is basically the holiness code, um, also presented at the base of Mount Sinai, which is where Moses got the Ten Commandments. If any of you have ever seen, um, was it the history of the world, the old Mel Brooks movie where Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's like, I've brought to you the 15, and then he stumbles and drops a tablet, and he's like, the 10 commandments. (laughs) That was Exodus, okay, then Leviticus. Uh, Then we have the book of Numbers, which is where we're at, and that is the 40-year journey from their redemption from from Egypt into the... finish right at the base of the promised land, basically, right at the Jordan River. And then Deuteronomy is actually the last 40 days of Moses' life where he teaches the Israelites before they head into the promised land. So anyhow, that's where we're at. Now, the book of Numbers is called that, it has that name, because of the Latin translation and because there are two censuses in the book. Two census, counting of people, right? There's one in chapter one and one in chapter 26. That's where the book gets its name that we have, but the Hebrew name for this book of the Bible is based off the first like sentence or clause that you would see in your Bible, and it's that in the wilderness. That's how it's translated. The Hebrew uh, translation of this and, and how they would be reading it, this book would actually be called in the wilderness. And the reason why is because they were in the wilderness. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. We just spent five months in Corinth in Greece. Now we're going to spend uh, four months in the wilderness with the Israelites. But they spent 40 years there. They didn't have to spend 40 years there. We'll get to that later on. But right now, this morning, we are going to be talking about chapters 1 and 2. And chapters 1 and 2 begin with the census. Last thing, though, last order of business Before we get to that, because all of you, I can tell, you're like, when are we going to get to the census? Um, Last order of business, though. Three reasons why you should really care about the book of Numbers. First, because God's story of love and redemption and fulfilling of promises that he brings to the nation of Israel is the same story that he is bringing to you and I today in the covenant of grace that we have through Jesus Christ. It's the same story, only we're not in the desert. Second, it's one of the 66 books of the Bible, which means that it is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that everyone may be equipped for all good works, as Second Timothy says. And third, because, and you know, this is also important, you don't know your New Testament until you know your Old Testament. You might think you do, but all of the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament. If you want to be somebody who understands what God is saying in the New Testament, you need to be somebody who understands the stories of the Old Testament. So with that, the census. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after Israel's departure from the land of Egypt. Take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their ancestral families, counting the names of every male one by one. You and Aaron are to register those who are 20 years old or more by their military divisions, everyone who can serve in Israel's army. A man from each tribe is to be with you, each one the head of his ancestral family. So the first thing is the first sentence. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So, If you might recall, back in Exodus, right, we got the instructions for how to build the tabernacle. That is the place where the Lord's presence dwells, and that's going to be really important for us in the book of Numbers, but that is where Moses speaks with the Lord, and one thing that, I don't know, I feel like people, when we look at the Old Testament, sometimes we feel like God is this very far off um, being uh, when he's relating to his people. But actually, God is, has very, very personal relationships with the leaders of Israel. Uh, Moses, he speaks to frequently, like one-to-one. Um, that's one of the wonderful things about Moses is it says he's one of the few people who are able to see God in that way. And so Moses has an extremely personal relationship with God. That personal relationship is going to be very painful later on in Numbers when Moses is unable to enter into the promised land. But right now we just see it as Moses receiving instructions from the Lord on what he's supposed to do. And these instructions are coming at the base of Mount Sinai. So we've come out of Egypt, we've crossed the Red Sea, and now we've come to Mount Sinai. Okay, And Mount Sinai is where a lot of things happen. Like I said, it's where the book of Exodus and Leviticus happen, or a large part of Exodus. And now we're about to like decamp. We're about to start the journey that will take up most of the book. And here at the base of Mount Sinai, the Lord says, okay, there's a couple sort of housekeeping things that we need to do before we pick up and start moving, because we have quite a long ways to go walking to get to the promised land. And one of those things that he tells them they need to do is they need to count the men who would be serving in the military. So here's the thing about Israel. They don't have a military. They're like 11 months. They've been here. They've been uh, removed from Egypt for a little over a year. They've been at Sinai for 11 months. But for 400 years, they have been making bricks as slaves in Egypt. There is no military force in Israel. And so when you see them counting people who would be a part of the military, it's like, who would be the right age to serve in the military? And it's 20 on up. And so those are the individuals who are being counted. And they're being counted because they are about to meet a lot of hostility as they go through the desert. They are a small but fledgling nation that is exorbitantly wealthy because they took some of the gold from Egypt before they left. They have a lot of herd animals and things like that and basically they are easy pickings for any one of the nations that are around who hears that this huge group of people is moving through the desert. And so God is going to be protecting them and they need to learn what it is like to have war so that when they go to the promised land, they can enter into it. So that is why this census ultimately happens. The sad thing, though, about the census, and like I said, there are just a lot of things that we'll get to later, but every single person in this census that is counted, and every single person who is at Mount Sinai, when they counted, except for two people, are dead by the end of the book of Numbers because of their sin. This census that you see in chapter one is a list of everybody who did not make it into the promised land because of their sin. It's important for us to recognize that later on. So the census happens. If you're following along in your Bible, you'd see that I'm, uh, for the sake of time, we're not gonna read the census. You should, but we're not gonna do it right now. These are the men Moses and Aaron registered with the assistance of the 12 leaders of Israel. Each represented his ancestral family. So all the Israelites, 20 years old or more, everyone who could serve in Israel's army, were registered by their ancestral families. All those registered numbered 603,550. So I skipped over reading uh, the part about the ancestors. But here's the thing about the census. Um, You should really care about it. You should care about it because there are a lot of boring numbers in your life that you really care about. Um, And I recognize that it is not the most exciting thing to read, but it has a lot of value. Maybe you're interested in sabermetrics for baseball. Maybe you watch the US Treasury market. Um, Maybe you are somebody who wants to know everything about YouTube analytics. Whatever it is, there are probably some boring numbers in your life that carry a lot of value and meaning. And that's the case here. You don't have to love reading the censuses. You don't have to make it a part of your daily devotionals every day, but you should recognize the importance of it. And I'll try and draw out a little bit of the importance here in a second. But if you're playing along at home, you might notice that as they were counting the individuals, okay, there's one tribe that gets left out, the Levites. The Levites were not registered with them by their ancestral tribe, For the Lord had told Moses, Do not register or take a census of the tribe of Levi with the other Israelites. Appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, all its furnishings and everything in it. They are to transport the tabernacle and all its articles, take care of it, and camp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down, and whenever it is to stop at a campsite, the Levites are to set it up. Any unauthorized person who comes near it is to be put to death. Okay, so actually next week we'll talk more about the Levites, but for right now, you might see that it says the Levites are called the firstborn. Well, they're not really the firstborn. That would be Reuben, right? Because we go, we're going to talk a lot about tribes in the book of Numbers as well as just in the Old Testament. So what that's referencing is the patriarchs of Israel back in Genesis. You have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Jacob kind of got this alternate name, which was Israel, and Jacob slash Israel had 12 sons. The firstborn of them was Reuben, and this would also include one of his sons was Joseph, right? Like Technicolor Dreamcoat guy, okay, that one. So anyhow... Those, the tribes that you're reading about here are those sons of Israel, sons of Jacob, as they've gone down through the generations and have now populated, right, this group of people. And so when you read through the census, Reuben's listed first because he was the firstborn back then. So Levi, though, was not the firstborn. That was Reuben. What this is talking about is, and long story short, that God has asked that the firstborn of everything be dedicated to him. This was something that happened back in Leviticus, right, when it comes to the animals. Um, But also, this was something that happened back in Egypt, when the final plague was the killing of the firstborn of those Egyptians who had hardened their hearts, and those who had put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost were passed over, the first Passover, um, and they were spared. God said, I basically redeemed your firstborn children, and they belong to me. But so that every family doesn't have to give up their firstborn child and dedicate them to taking care of the tabernacle. He says, we're just going to take a whole tribe, one of the 12 tribes, and they are going to be the ones who do this job. That's the Levites. They're sort of exchanged for the firstborn children of all Israel. Okay. So that's what the Levites do. You might notice though though their job, they are to guard the tabernacle. And you're like, guard it? What? Well, there is a small danger that the ark uh, that is within uh, could be taken. That actually happens later on uh, by the Philistines and Samuel, First Samuel. But really, they are guarding the tabernacle from the Israelites. There's a really great argument to be made that Israel does not understand yet what it looks like to live right next to a holy God. And because of that, they frequently encounter death because they are sinful and they are entering into God's holy presence. And he's like, those two things don't mix. So the Levites are really there to protect Israel from themselves. More on that next week. But as we go on, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Now this is the beginning of chapter two. The Israelites are to camp under their respective banners, right? Their ancestral families, besides the flags. They are to camp around the tent of meeting at a distance from it. So. Everything that Israel is being instructed to do is coming directly from God. There is nothing here that is a hunch, that is a best guess, that is Moses just going, you know what would make sense? Every single thing that they are doing is God talking to Moses and sometimes by extension Aaron or the other priests or judges and they are carrying out God's word. One of the things that God has done now that he has counted everybody in the military is he is going to start arranging each one of these tribes around this central point of the tabernacle. This is going to be how they camp because they, they move around the desert. This is going to be how they camp. And then when they get up and start traveling, they, basically that, one, that system of centering around the tabernacle just gets strung out in a, into a line where the tabernacle is still in the middle. Everything, everything about their life when they were going through the wilderness was centered on the fact that God was at the middle of their camp, everything. You go out and collect manna in the morning, you come back and you are walking towards either a pillar of clouds or a pillar of fire, whichever one is over the tabernacle at that moment, if it's day or night. Everything about God is at the center of their camp. Not only his holy presence, but because all the 12 tribes are arrayed around this tabernacle, okay, they are constantly reminded as they're camping of where they must look to. We'll get back to that later on. So, there's one interesting thing, though, about how they're camped. And you'll see this in verse 3. It begins talking about the tribe of Judah, Okay, And you'll notice that this is different from the census because the census was based on the age of the sons of Israel. But the census does this really interesting, or excuse me, the, the, the arrangement of the camps does this interesting thing, and they take the fourth son, Judah, and boop, 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 he comes to the top of the list. He's the first one mentioned. He is also the biggest tribe, family. Well, this is what it says. Judah's military divisions... We'll camp on the east side toward the sunrise under the banner. The leader of the descendants of Judah is Nashon, son of Amenadab. His military division numbers 74,600. The tribe of Issachar, will camp next to it. That's another son. This is another tribe. The leader of the Issacharites is uh, Nathaniel, son of Zuor. His military division numbers 54,400. The tribe of Zebulon, that's a third, will be next. The leader of the Zebulonites is Eliab, son of Helon. His military division numbers 57,400. The total number in their military divisions, Hubalim, Belong to Judah's encampment is 186,400, they will move out first. So we're top down, we're looking at the camp, okay? Generally speaking, they are moving in a northeastern direction from Egypt to the promised land. But the fact that they are on the east side has way more significance if we can think about the other things that are going on in the Bible, where the east is a uh, takes priority. Okay. We have, let's talk about the garden of Eden, right? The garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve leave it, they have to head out the doors on the east side, right? They go east of Eden, um, because the gateway into the garden of Eden that is now guarded by the, the angel with the flaming sword. That's so interesting. Anyhow, um, is on the east side, And then you have the tabernacle, right, and later the temple, things which are supposed to be representative of the Garden of Eden. That's why they're covered in fruits and vegetables and stuff. And all the, like, gold work is pomegranates because it's supposed to be the garden, a representative of that where God dwells. Well, the doors are on the east side. And so now here we have in the camp, the east is the priority spot. They are the ones that go out first. And Judah is the one that is sort of contained. And even though two other tribes are with them, it is Judah that is said to be leading the charge. Okay, this is important. We go back to Genesis, and we see that Judah has a primary spot in the future history of Israel. There's a prophecy back when we go back to, I mean, so it's like Father Abraham had many sons, right? Isaac, Jacob. When Jacob is on his deathbed and he, is, he puts his hand on all of his 12 sons and basically gives a prophecy for their life, when he gets to Judah, this is what he says. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion, My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right, it is, comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. And all of Judah's brothers go, what? He's not the firstborn. Doesn't make any sense. Should be Reuben's right that... Some kind of ruler is going to come out of Judah and the staff is never going to depart. The scepter is never going to leave his hand. There will always be a ruler coming out. Okay, well, so this was a prophecy and it ends up bearing truth, right? Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers and who do we have down here? King David, King David comes from the tribe of Judah. Righteous King David, the one who truly conquered the promised land. The one, a man after God's own heart. The greatest leader in Israel's history. The greatest king, certainly. The one who united his people. Great King David comes from Judah. Oh wait, there's more. You keep going here, and it's not just King David, But we're in the book of Matthew, and we come to Jesus, the Messiah, comes from the tribe of Judah, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of Man, Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior, comes from the tribe of Judah. And so we can take all this information. This is why I'm saying it's so important that you know your Old Testament to kind of know your new as well as is this is in the book of Matthew in the gospel and where they're talking about the Messiah and you're starting out with, hey, it's not a census, but it's a genealogy. And you're like, who cares? Well, this is why you should care. Because what Matthew is trying to show to the people of Israel is he's like, hey, don't you see that this guy that we're calling the Savior, the Messiah, the one who has come, he is the fulfillment of the prophecy way back in Genesis. He is the one who is going to come and the scepter will never leave his feet because he is the full, the righteous, the perfect king over all of his people. And so we see what was going on now back in the book of Numbers, though the Israelites would have been like, who? They don't know Jesus. They don't even know King David. They are probably thinking, when Judah gets placed on the east side, they are probably thinking, well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Somebody great is going to come out of the tribe of Judah. Or maybe they just think, hey, they're the largest, and so they should be the ones leading our military encampment. But nevertheless, because we know and God has revealed it to us, we can look back at these stories and say, wow, God, you were showing something, even just the seeds of truth that now have bloomed into this amazing flower that we can look at and say, God had placed the tribe of Christ at the front of Israel. And as they were going through all of the desert and all of the wilderness, as they camped and as they got up and they headed out, they were always being led by Judah. They're always being led by the camp of Christ. Final verse, and the final uh, verse we'll look at this morning is in chapter two, verse 34. The Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. They camped by their banners in this way and moved out the same way, each man by his clan and by his ancestral family. You know, there's a lot of things that go on in the book of Numbers where Israel is not going to listen to God. And so we just need to take this great moment as it stands and just be thankful that for at least a couple chapters, Israel says, you know what? He is my God, and we are his people, and we're going to listen to what he says. You're like, oh, that's wonderful. I wish you would keep doing that. Um, But they don't, and lots of bad things happen. Nevertheless, at the end of chapter 2, that is what is happening. They they have uh, basically made this covenant with God at the base of Mount Sinai. They have said, you are our God, we are our people. Or rather, God said that to them, and he said, if you follow me... I will be your God and you will be my people. Yet what we see throughout the book of Numbers is they say, no thanks a lot of times to God. They get frustrated with him. They grow bitter. They complain. They rebel against him. They turn against their own. They try and overthrow Moses. They try and return back to Egypt to go into slavery once again because they think it's better than the promise that God is preparing them for. But nevertheless, God is faithful to his covenant people and he says, I will be with you. So with that, I want to reflect on two things this morning that we've learned. Two facts and two questions that relate to chapters one and two of Numbers and the census and the camping arrangements. The first fact is that God dwelled at the center of the Israelite camp. And my question is, is God at the center of your camp? You know, I've already said this, but everything about Israel going through the desert would have been focused on the fact that God was at the middle of everything that they were doing. And if you were with us last spring and we talked about the book of Leviticus and you learned about all of the different rites and rituals and purity things they had to do, everything about their life was something that reminded them of God's goodness and his holiness and the perfection that he is and he asked of his people, yet they continually failed to carry out. God is righteous and he chose... Don't lose this. The fact that God is a God that is, you know, could be unknowable, could be at the furthest um, part of your imagination, could be a God who is distant, and yet he is near and present and says, Dear Israel, I am going to walk amongst you, I am going to go through the desert. With you, My presence will be at your side. That is huge. That is amazing that the God of the universe says, I want to walk with you, my sinful creation, even though you constantly reject me. And he says, this is how we're going to make it work. But the other thing that was going on throughout the wilderness is that Israel, over those 40 years, was developing into a nation that could finally inherit the promise that God had given to them. There are going to be some sad things that go along the way. But if we can take sort of this bird's eye view of what was happening, God was building that nation up. Not only geographically were they literally walking to the promised land, which they needed to do, but physically they were becoming a nation by engaging in these wars as they were traveling. Then when they entered into the promised land, they would actually be able to fight. But also they were a nation that was growing spiritually. People who for 400 years... I mean, they had to basically recommit themselves to God when they were at Mount Sinai. They had not had that strong of a faith while they had been slaves, but God said, I made a promise that I was going to rescue you, and I'm going to do it. Now, all of these things relate directly to us, though, because there is a very, very easy connection to be made that we are also walking through the wilderness of this life. That God has promised to us a future of hope and of blessing where there's no more crying and no more tears and we see it as an eternity with him in heaven and we are walking through this hard world and it takes a lot of energy and it is very difficult and painful to make that journey. And the question you have to ask yourselves is, during this journey that I'm on, where I'm heading towards the promises that God is preparing me for, during this journey, is God gonna be at the center of my camp? Am I going to put him there? Or, like so many of us, are we just gonna be like, yeah, he's, he's over the ridge, he's picking up the tail end. God is, yeah, he's, he's with me, but mostly I reach out to him just when I need a lot of help. Or, like Israel... Are you placing him at the center of your camp? And frankly, Israel shouldn't even get the credit. God said, you need to place me at the center of your camp. Because if you don't, you're going to be a Dutch. So I think it's important for us to think about this. As we begin the book of Numbers and see what God is doing, when he says, Moses, put me in the middle. You should look at your life as well and say, God, am I putting you at the middle of my life? If I have a family, God, are we putting you at the middle of our life? What about our life needs to shift and change so that Jesus Christ and God is at the middle? But not only at the middle, but at the front. Judah, the tribe of Christ, led Israel through the desert. You'd say, God is at the center of my life. Everything I do revolves around him. He is the greatest priority. My kids would be able to say, my mom and dad say that God is the greatest priority in their life and they act like it too. But we have to remember that this wilderness journey is not an easy one. There are going to be many trials and travails that Israel has to go through. And along the way God says, whenever they camp and whenever they move and however long they move, And whenever they do it, and in whatever circumstances, Judah is the one that leads the way. The tribe of Christ is the one that is going to lead this nation through. And as you are going through the desert too, there is a definite need for you to place Jesus Christ at the front of your life. And basically what that means is you say, I'm going to follow after him. It is not... Our relationship with Christ is not a peer-to-peer relationship. It is not one where we go, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Here's what I think about this. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, as much as he wants a personal relationship with you because he is a personal God, Jesus Christ, though, is the one we are to follow. We are in submission to him. It means saying, God, your ways are best, not mine. I don't know how to get through the desert. I don't know how to make my way through And Lord, I don't really like to wander very much. And so if I would like to not wander and feel aimlessly lost, Lord, I dedicate myself to you that you are going to be the one who leads me. But there's one final detail there, though, that's very, very important. The book of Numbers, spoiler alert, okay? The book of Numbers, when we get to the end, they're not actually going to get into the promised land. The census that we, well, that you read in preparation for this morning and that we skipped over, right? The census is a list of people who don't enter into the promised land because they did not follow after God. And it's very, very important that you understand that unless Jesus Christ is the one that you have called upon to be your Savior, unless He is the one that is leading your life, when it comes time for us, not even numbers now, for us to get to the gates to the uh, basically the Jordan River and to cross over into heaven. When it is time for us and, and our you know this mortal coil has finished and God has called us, he says, "You are done. When we get to those gates, you do not enter into the promised land unless Jesus is the one who is leading your life, because it is only through Christ that you are forgiven for all of the sins that you have committed in the desert. That is one thing that the Israelites in Numbers did not have. They were held to account for their sins. And because of that, only two of them from this first list made it in, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses makes it. So, it is very important, as we go ahead, that you say, God is going to be at the center of my life. Everything is going to revolve around him. He is going to be the hub of my wheel and not a spoke. And also Jesus Christ is going to be the one that I follow through this wilderness because without him, I have no hope of entering into the promised land. And that is the promise that God had given to his people. It was the promise that he was fulfilling in their life. And as he was preparing them to enter into the literal promised land, he was working all of these things out. And it's a privilege for us to be able to study numbers and to see them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your mercy as we walk through the wilderness, Lord, and as we see ourselves struggling and and filled with pain and confusion and oftentimes misery because this world is not our home, Lord. We are thankful, God, that you can be at the center of it all, that when we go out and when we come back, Lord, you are the one that we set our eyes upon. God, that everything about our lives can be something that relates back to you. But God, we also thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection that shows us, Lord, that there is a promised land, that there is a place of hope. There is a place where we have a future, God, with you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to the king whose scepter never leaves his feet because that is the one we want to worship and follow all the days of our life. Father, it is one is a hard relationship for us to follow because we like being in control. But God, we do not enjoy wandering through the wilderness. And we know that you are the one that has the path. Father, please help us with all these things by the power of your spirit to trust in the son for salvation so that God, we might be with you and with all the other believers in that promised land when our journey through the wilderness is finished. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: All right. What a great, strong way to start our sermon series in numbers. Woo!
2: Yes. We're going. (laughs) We're heading down the road.
1: It looked to me like... A batter a seasoned veteran baseball player digging into the plate for the first pitch of the season oh very good just like you seem ready to go here. with numbers a yeah. book well, of the bible then. that's somewhat long and we're gonna do a lot of sermon yeah it just I'll, yeah
2: so in all honesty i've had a couple people and then this happened uh multiple times last spring when we did leviticus say i had very low expectations <laughs> for what this was going to be and you did and it ranges from a good job to a pretty good you know something like that they're like it wasn't too bad it was not (laughs) cripplingly boring (laughs) so um i'll tell you what though that is one of my my favorite things and the reason why it's really simple it's just because most people have skipped over this stuff and so it feels like new ground to cover Mm -hmm. yeah or just you know there's a lot to say about that whereas you know philippians or something like that i'm like i feel like you've read this quite a few times Anyhow, I, I like doing old testament books.
1: Oh, that well, was we're enjoying yeah, it with very you. good. Yep. Yeah.
0: Jason, did you have a question?
1: Oh sure. You
0: look like you're eager to <laughs> bounce.
1: Well, I mean yeah, and I, I did think the sermon was really engaging about well, the first two chapters of Numbers, and I don't think I've ever thought so much about censuses. Oh or, man, you haven't? Oh okay. No, censuses. Other than the census when you know when they went to Bethlehem, but that's another story. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and Good then uh, my other
2: favorite census in the Bible. So. Yes, <laughs> but also, of all the censuses in the Bible.
0: <laughs> there should be a better group noun for censuses. Since I? Sensei, <laughs> sensei, sensei.
1: Yeah, but also make it interesting. Kind of just thinking about the configuration of the camp. Oh yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and there there's a common belief uh amongst people yeah that if you drew out the encampment mm-hmm. of all of the tribes of Israel mm-hmm. that it would create a cross
2: the, shape yeah a cross yeah. a lot of renditions
0: cross. out there yeah.
2: yeah yeah so i i thought about getting into that on sunday but you know it just it it would be kind of be a, a longer thing but yeah if you just google search like numbers camping you know israel that kind of deal um specifically because in numbers two they list about the different areas uh, on each side on the cardinal directions some people will take an overhead view and say that it looks like a cross mm-hmm. right so here's why that's probably not the case um is most of the times when people are um, saying that it looks like a cross it's coming from a desire to sort of take something that's in a symbol that we're familiar with and project it back onto what was happening. So there's, there's two reasons why that probably was not the case. The first is that we have to remember this is a military encampment, right? Mm -hmm. They are, they are expecting and will encounter war. And one of the least advantageous, advantageous positions to be in would be a sort of hub with four long arms stretching out across the desert um, where instead of, what I, th- I think and a lot of the commentators, serious commentators believe is that it is basically just a rectangle. Mm-hmm. And that when you look at the cardinal directions, like uh, Judah and the other two tribes that are, are on the East side, that Judah's probably in the middle and the other two on either side of it, but that they kind of all sort of make this wide band around the Ark of the covenant, which is sitting in the middle. Right. Right. If you have uh, legs that are stretching out and you know, one tribe is further away from the encampment than the other. Then you're really, um, you're exposing it to danger, yeah. basically. And you have a weak spot. Yeah, you, you yeah. would have four weak spots specifically. Yes, very, so, yeah. um, it's it's a really neat theme, in the idea that Christ is imaged. But I, I really think we can find that just in the fact that Judah is leading the way, right. the tribe of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, God is still carrying out those promises, and we don't necessarily have to, you know, find the symbol there. But it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a neat it's a neat theory, but. And that's about where it lasts.
0: <laughs> and the pillar of fire and the cloud. Yeah, I mean, that's a, would you call that a theophany?
2: Um, ooh, ooh, that is a good question. Um, maybe. I mean, I here. Okay, here's my quick answer. I think it comes back to whatever you would say about like the burning bush. Hmm. Was God in the fire of the burning bush, or was that a sign of His? Okay presence. So I think you'd find people who would say, yeah, that would sure. be a theophany. But most of the time a theophany is going to be reserved for when we specifically, s- it specifically seems like we're seeing God himself. So like when Moses gets put into the cleft of the rock and God walks by um, and Moses sees his backside, that would be a more strict definition of a theophany. But
0: mm. I took us off track, but no, you're fine. What, That's good what's, question? Um, <laughs> the important thing about this part of this lesson is that Judah, the tribe of Judah, which yep. leads to Jesus yes. was leading them. It was. As they
2: went. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fulfillment of prophecy and God showing his promise for the future. So there was another thing though, that, um, that I, I chose to stay away from. And, uh, here in a few moments, everybody's going to understand why, which is that the um I, the censuses, <laughs> they involve, uh, as anybody who was paying attention would see very, very large numbers.
0: Oh yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Okay, so the total number, remember this is a census of fighting men, which is age 20 through, I'm trying to remember what it goes through. I think it's 20 through 50, but I could be wrong. But it starts at age 20, and um, it is measuring the fighting men because it's a military campaign. If you take, which is like 603,550, if you take that number and using the kind of the information we have of the time and project that out to what the Population of Israel in total would be women, children, old folks, younger than twenty. That There's kind of thing. There's some
0: multiplier that someone has probably come up
2: with. That right? Yeah. There. That number would be between two and three million people, okay. and normally it kind of finds itself landing somewhere in between. So, can we just stop for a minute? Yeah. So that is mind blowing. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and uh, to be honest with you, that's kind of the problem. Okay. <laughs> so here's the deal: is there's, and I'm, I'm going to go through it in a second, there's a decent amount of evidence to make us think that the numbers that are presented in the book of numbers are mistranslated and are by many factors larger than the size of Israel actually was. Okay. And at the very end here, I'll kind of present, we can look at this literally and we can look at it from this other view. And, but the important thing to remember Before I kind of start down this rabbit hole, and that's definitely what it is, it does not matter what the numbers are. No matter if Israel was two and a half million or 30,000, and I'll get to that in a second, God is still the one who is doing all of these things. The specific number of people in Israel, it changes nothing about the story except maybe how you might look at certain verses, Okay, so it's not like if we say there that wasn't six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty, that we're saying that the Bible and what it's saying isn't true. So let me get okay, ready. All right. Okay. You know how we love numbers. (laughs) Yeah, you know how we just love that more information on the census, Connor. Please (laughs) bring it. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, one of the reasons I'm going to give you a couple reasons why the big numbers are a problem. Okay. And before I do that, I'm going to give you one reason that a lot of commentators would say is a problem that I disagree with. Okay. And then I'll give you the ones I agree with. The one I disagree with is they'll say two and a half million people is way too many people to go through the desert for 40 years. And even with the providence of God for them to be able to survive. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's, I was talking with pastor Jim about this, uh, last week and he said he did the math on it. And it was like, if there were, <laughs>
0: of course, Jim, of did. course he did the
2: math, by the way, if <laughs> anybody doesn't know <laughs> Jim's undergrad was in math, that was wow. his bachelor's. So I, I'm forgetting the specific constraints, but he was basically like, if there were two and a half million people over the 40 years and, um, all of, cause remember the first census, everybody has to die except for two people. Right. So in 40 years, that whole number, and there was a specific way he worked it out, but it was like, there would be a funeral every eight minutes for somebody who was dying <laughs> along the journey. Maybe. Um, and I, I don't know if that included some of the big, you know, jumps like the plagues and things like yeah. that, but anyhow, um, <laughs> so the thing <laughs> wow. I disagree with is so Nehemiah nine twenty through 21 says, um, you gave your good uh, Nehemiah speaking to God, you gave your good spirit to instruct them speaking about those back Mm -hmm. in the desert and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And so the reason I reject this is just that Um, we're about to give some sort of biblical and non-biblical evidence for why the numbers are too big, but to say that they couldn't be sustained by God in the desert, (laughs) that one, I have a lot of trouble with. I think he could sustain as many as he wanted. Obviously it was a supernatural event. And as Nehemiah is saying here that there were even no matter the number, God was, you know, making sure things like their sandals didn't wear out after yeah. walking through the and desert. Their feet didn't swell.
0: I mean, I've yeah. never been there, <laughs> right? But I have heard from others who have that, yeah. like, within twenty-four hours of touching down on the ground there, like, your feet just swell.
2: Huh? Hmm, yeah. Really? So maybe not
0: your experience.
2: Yeah, I don't know. We, maybe we should go. That's it's a that lot of walking. A podcast-sponsored field trip. We'll be on location in Israel, <laughs> testing whether our feet I'm are there. Swollen. Yes, my feet are I'm not in. swollen. <laughs> okay, so here though are four reasons why the. Uh, big numbers in the book of numbers might be a problem (laughs) first. And these kind of are in order of importance. First, the nation of Israel multiple times is characterized as being a smaller nation than the other nations that it's fighting against. Mm. Okay. So like in um, uh, Deuteronomy nine verses one through two, Hear, O Israel, this is God speaking. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Okay, so um, in Deuteronomy seven 7.1... Um, That also says when the Lord, your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of and clears away many of the nations before you. And then it lists, you know, the names, Hittites, Girgashites, all the list, um, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. So um, it is it is an absolute biblical fact that Israel multiple times and more than the ones that I'm listing here are, um, or even Deuteronomy seven, seven, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. Okay. So if we're two and a half million based upon everything that we know, and I'm something people should know about, I'm very hesitant when it comes to knowledge we have outside of the Bible that should influence how we look at what the Bible says in this case though, the best projections about like the size of Egypt at the time was, we
0: know the landmass, the yeah. approximate landmass that we're talking about. Yes. This is sounding really crowded.
2: was certainly. like three to 4 million people. Okay. And mm-hmm. so if you had, it is so 430 years, Um, right. The Israelites go into slavery in Egypt. There's 70 of them. Mm-hmm. They come out two and a half million. Yes. So that would be a birth rate of like 2.6%, which is possible to sustain over that long. Like that happens. There are a, f- a scant number of nations in our world today that have a population growth that high, but it is exceedingly high. Like 2.2 was the average during the 20th century when yeah, a lot of nations were exploding. Birth
1: growth. Rate, 2.2. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So
2: every person for every person, every person they're would expecting have 2. that 2.6 2. 2. 2. 2. 2. 2. 2. 2. People, people sort of replace the replacement rate. So
1: if, uh, a family of a mom and a dad would have five or five plus 5. Kids. Yeah. two kids or whatever. Yeah. Is that right? I mean, something like that.
0: And this is between what two time periods again, this is between them leaving Egypt.
2: Now this is just how, how could they come to be that large? Cause if Egypt, Egypt is three to 4 million people and the Israelites were 2.5 million people, mm-hmm. Hey, that, you know, that's a lot of people to the logistics of slavery, but then just, how is it that in 430 years? They go from 70 to 2.5 million mm-hmm. while they were still being, you know, um, persecuted so heavily. Now we do know that, um, Egypt, one of the reasons that they were frustrated and kind of wanted to get rid of them is there were a lot of Israelites being born, right? This is, uh, Exodus one with the midwives. And when they, when they're telling them to kill all the, uh, Israelite children mm-hmm. in the midwives are like, no, thanks. We're going to save them. It's because there were, their birth rate was so high. However, I'm just gonna keep saying, it. yeah, sure. Again, though, they assigned two midwives for Israel, right? So that's not many midwives to. No, if there's 2.5 million <laughs> that, people. Yeah, I hope
0: a sister is getting some overtime. Yeah, but
2: that
1: was the two reasons, right? That well, they said that there, in Exodus chapter one, if I'm remembering right, that they didn't remember who Joseph was, and then yeah. the second thing was there had been so, there were so many people, they were kind of afraid they were going to get overrun. by Yes. Them. Yeah. yeah.
2: Now I think it's just, um, it stretches sort of the idea of that Egypt, including the Israelites would be now 5.5 to 7 million people that goes outside of every single person's historical understanding of the size of Egypt at the time, let alone for that matter, the size of the Hittites, Girgashites, you know, parasites, all of these individuals, um, the fact that every single one of them, as it says in uh, Deuteronomy seven, one would have been larger Larger. than Israel. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: We're running out of space. Running out of space.
2: Okay. That was reason one. I'll go faster on the other one. That's
0: okay. No, no, (laughs) thank you. That pace helped me understand. Yeah. Me who is numbers challenge. Understand.
2: Two, uh, two here is that um, it it comes from the book of numbers. So in chapter three, uh, they do the, um, the, the, Census for the Levites. You might recall that in chapter one, they're excluded from the census. Mm-hmm. They have a special role. So when it comes to the Levites, um, they have their own census, and their number comes to um, it's just over twenty thousand. It's like twenty-two thousand or something like that. And they're supposed to be an exchange of the firstborn, and it's it's kind of a. And I talked about that in the sermon, right? That it it was exchanging the firstborn of all the other tribes. Levite becomes the true extension. But it's not like a general exchange. Like there's a process, a monetary process set up that if there's a one-to-one exchange for like a Levite to a firstborn from another family, and if that number gets skewed, there's a shekel price, okay? So (laughs) why that's relevant is if you take the exact number of the Levites in numbers three and say that they are all the firstborn of all Israel, that would mean that the average mother in Israel had between 50 and 60 children, that's yes. probably a stretch. Yeah, probably. And no amount of, I know it comes up later in the old Testament. Well, it had happened. It happens in Genesis. Um, but the idea just for anybody who wants to round that off, the idea of like polygamy or something accounting for that, <laughs> um, that is still not only an excessive number, but it seems to be that mostly the polygamy is happening within um, the like more wealthier people within the nation. Mm-hmm. Regardless, that's a lot of people. That is too much, uh, it seems, 60 to 70. Where that's coming from is that it would be like 27 uh, ch- uh, males mm-hmm. that each woman would have, and then you're thinking 50-50. I get Okay. So number three, um, God specifically notes that the conquest of Canaan, the promised land, um, is going to take a lot of time. So in Exodus twenty three thirty, God says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. Uh, furthermore, in Deuteronomy seven twenty two, God says, or rather Moses, the Lord, your God, will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. So there, and in, in Exodus, the point was that God was going to slowly... Conquer Canaan with the Israelites because they did not have enough people to fill the land. Mm -hmm. And therefore the wild beasts would take over and the nation, they wouldn't, it says like the crops would basically, they didn't have somebody to be able to take over all the blessings of the promised land. If you had two and a half million people, (laughs) you would be bursting at the seams in modern day Israel, ancient Palestine. I mean, you, yeah, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, as far as I understand, uh, that there would be, there'd be no problem. They think that that two and a half million is greater than the population that that area has ever known up and until like the 21st or 20th century.
1: Hmm.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah. Uh, last one is, and this one is anecdotal, uh, and it relates to number one, but it's different. You might recall this summer, Uh, we did the series retold where we looked at some Mm -hmm. children's stories and or popular biblical stories for children. And we looked at um, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? Okay. Well Jericho is the first battle that they have crossing the Jordan going into the promised land. And uh, we know exactly where ancient Jordan is today. We have uncovered, uh, there've been many archeological digs on top of Jordan. Um, I even in the sermon that I did on it, I talked about the evidence that we have for the wall falling down Um, but the, uh, like all ancient cities where they were built on top of a hill and the walls of Jericho could hold at most a couple thousand people. So when you have, let's kind of take this 600,000 something fighting men. Yes. And you are walking around the walls of Jericho seven times for an entire week. It is consistently described as being sort of the, mark of the of defense that needs to be overcome Mm -hmm. in order to Mm -hmm. enter into the promised land and you outnumber them by a factor of like 50 to one or I don't even know what that math would be but I mean there is um, all ancient civilizations that we're looking at this is like late bronze age is like 1400 BC that would be around that time for uh, Jordan like every civilization like they're big if they are Thousands of people, mm-hmm. let alone like nobody's millions.
0: All the Israelites would have had to do is walk in and just say, Hey, we're taking your tower. Yeah,
2: exactly. Look, look at the people behind well, us. Also,
1: because they didn't just walk around seven times, they walked around seven times on the seventh day. Uh-huh. So I don't even know how long it would take 13, 600,000 people. Probably a to long walk time. Around. I mean, how do you know, remember how far around the. Perimeter?
2: It was maybe like a, um, you're talking about circumference. Yeah. yeah. Like, like two or three miles.
1: So would even six hundred thousand fighting men fit in two or three months? Yeah, I, have, I to, have no idea. They'd I, have I mean, to stack up. Yeah, would yeah. they have? Yeah. So anyway,
2: so it's wow. uh, so those four reasons, and and there are, there are others, but I won't get into them. But they all they all kind of tail into the thing, and it's and frankly, right? We need to be, we should be so cautious when we look at things and we say, man, evidence outside of the Bible points to X. Yeah. Right. For changing how we view something. So now I'm going to present though the most popular alternative theory, there are many, but the most popular alternative theory. And the reason I want to say that I'm comfortable with this where I normally wouldn't be is because it could very easily be shown through a translation error, as opposed to us just saying the Bible is incorrect. Right. Like and that
0: bi- is not something
2: right. we would like, say like We hold to inerrancy. Right. right. And so even when it seems like, man, that stretches, you know, credible belief, we still say, well, hey, we believe in a God of miracles and what has shown time and time and time again with a lot of those things, this is the case, you could ask Pastor Jim, but you could ask, you could look it up. Uh, In the case of the kingdom of David in Israel, it was a long time before they believed the claims of the size of Israel during the reign of King David Mm -hmm. until they began to uncover things in the 20th century with archeology span and saw uh, the land under his watch. Okay, Connor, focus. So- Here's the best option. Okay. Um, you can, well, okay. Let me take a step back. Let's talk about if we take it literally the way that some people would take it, right? 603,550 fighting men. So the thing that would support this is that you could say, there are a couple verses where you could say that the reason why Israel was shown to be so small, referred to as small, and there are many, is that, It was because of their cowardice or because of their attitude uh, towards taking on these challenges and not because of their numbers. So it's
0: demeanor and not numbers. Yeah.
2: So like in numbers, uh, even 13 verses 30 through 32, right? This is where they go and scout out the promised land and decide their first look. But Caleb, one of the only two who made it, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Mm-hmm. okay then the men who had gone up with him said we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are so they brought to the people of israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height that's his own very interesting <laughs> thing but giant zombies it has a lot that seems to be that their frustration is more to do with the children of the of anak the anakim um that are much larger than them, Mm -hmm. not necessarily more numerous Mm -hmm, than they are. Um, now is Caleb, does he have the confidence of David later on where he says, Hey, I can take on this Goliath guy because God is at my side, even though I am smaller than him. Or is it based on, we don't know exactly, but that would be the route that you'd go. If you said, Hey, these numbers are literal. God can sustain this many people. That's the reason why, even though they, okay. Um, I talked about the the population growth part. Um, Okay. So you would also have to say that Israel's size has somehow gone unnoticed to the rest of the world um, (laughs) because they were uh, through history and other means and that they have left no evidence behind as other nations have of their size that would significantly um, conflict with Ancient records, mm-hmm. right? Nope, nobody thinks they're that big. All right, here's the other option. So it has to do with the Hebrew. And so I'll kind of skip over this a little bit. Um, so there's a, a word that is used in describing these numbers. Okay, so when the Hebrew and numbers is describing the the numbers of, of men, they are writing it out kind of like for anybody who still writes checks, kind of like how you write out verbatim the amount on the check. Mm -hmm. It's at 150,000. I mean, that kind of thing. It's not a symbol. It's not a number. So the number that is translated as thousand is also translated elsewhere before and after, and even in the book of numbers as like tribe, Okay, and by that I don't mean like tribe of Judah, tribe of Levi, but like a collection of a group of people. Um it is used uh, it is applied to tribes in numbers ten four, it is applied to clans in Joshua Judges in the book of Micah, it is applied to families in Joshua twenty-two um as well, and it's applied to divisions in Numbers one sixteen. So the fr- and it's like L or L F. This word that is translated here as thousands, which is where we get these huge numbers, mm. many other times is translated differently.
0: As a unit of measurement instead of a number.
2: Yeah, to describe so a, a group of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: So here's what that would look like if we if we did change it. So you would say, if it's in reference to groups of some sort, not numerical thousands, numbers 121, which says uh, that the... Tri- um, Numbers 121, I'm trying to remember which tribe that is. Give me a second. Numbers 121 is the Reuben. Reuben, uh, the first tribe, is 46,500. So what that would look like is saying it would be translated as 6 and 40 clans, where clans is that number of 1,000. Mm-hmm. 6 and 40 clans or 500 And it also has to do with the word Vav that they're taking it instead of and to be, or, which is possible. So that would mean that the tribe of Reuben then would have been 500 fighting men from 46 family groups, which roughly fits right. Roughly a family of eight, which kind of still fits with this idea that, um, the Israelites were populous families that they had like a higher birth rate. They were still, you know, you know, had a lot of kids, um, but it takes the number down. So if you then go to the 603,550 of numbers 146, the total that would come out to be 598 families with 5,550 men. Um, That would also mean that the number of Levites, the Mm 22,000 would, it would be, be like they were coming from an average family size of eight or nine children, rather than sixty. Right. that would okay. fit with the number of Reuben. Not every, not every tribe, and by now tribe I mean Judah, Levi, not Levi, you know, um, Issachar, Zebulon, so forth. Not all of them have exactly eight per family, mm-hmm. as you might expect. they are different right. averages. Sure. Okay, so here's what it would clean up. It would make a total troop count of around fifty-five hundred. Okay. It would more easily align with the historical understanding of the size of Israel, bringing the total population to around 30,000.
0: 30,000. Okay.
2: Um, It does result in a more reasonable ratio of the firstborn children that I mentioned about eight. Uh, And then here are, here are a few of the difficulties, which I won't go into in depth. And then I have kind of a concluding thought. Um, So what it does require is that somebody along the way, misunderstood how to interpret the Hebrew of numbers. That's not impossible. Um, and it does, in fact, might surprise some people. When we talk about the Bible being inerrant, we say it is inerrant in its original autographs,
0: not necessarily the translation.
2: Yes. And so we say like the message is not inerrant, but the original Hebrew and the original Greek is what is inerrant. Yes. And so we're just basically saying in the process of translation, somebody sort of misunderstood this amount um, you'd also have some scholars, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so don't take it up with me um a lot of commentaries I read, all of them suggested this is the most likely option if you don't take the literal numbers, but nevertheless, there are some people who are a lot better at Hebrew that say we shouldn't take it to be we should take it to be a thousand and just have to deal with it um and then the last thing um and it's kind of a, just a detail, but there are other places in the book of numbers where s- um, like during the plagues where like 22,000 people die and, and pretty significant numbers. And those, we have a harder time Mm -hmm. bringing down to a smaller number. It's not like the same rule applies. And so you have to do something there with like, Okay, so then the population increased by a certain amount and then it decreased by a certain amount and because when the second po- when the second census is taken in numbers 26 there's almost it's not exact but there's almost the same number of people that started out in the desert. It's a very very similar. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's basically like it was kind of they'd go up and then a plague they would be disobedient or whatever and then it would bring them back down. Mm-hmm. Um but you do you do have to do a little bit of math there to figure out, you know, where they um, Exodus 12 says that there was a mixed multitude of people who left with the Israelites. Mm-hmm. So, is it like did some of them die too, and we're counting that as the number? Uh, is that kind of how far away how is that they, getting? How, how are they, they counted? This group, yes. yeah. You know, does that when they start taking in numbers, when they start you know fraternizing with these other nations and bringing in these wives, whatever. The point was, you just have to do a little bit more math than normal, and I know. We're not all <laughs> big lovers of math. Um, if there
0: were a quiz on this conversation next week, Jason,
2: right. I think you
0: and I would be bringing cases of tissue boxes to there donate
2: for, for extra, extra credit. credit. Yeah. So there yeah. are in conclusion, there are a couple other reasons that people will give. Some of them say mm. they're pure, purely symbolic. Some of them will say, um, for those who reject that Moses wrote the book of numbers, which we support, but, um, for those who have a a critical theory of it, that it was written during a time during um, uh, the kingdom of Israel, during David and all that stuff, that that was the size of their population then. But even then, 2.5 million is a really, really large for Israel during the reign of King David. So that's the end of the rabbit hole. Um, (laughs) We've caught the rabbit, I guess. I think what I go back on, I think everybody who has stayed listening with us to this point (laughs) recognizes why I did not bring this up on, um, on Sunday, no matter what, it really does not change the theological import of the book of numbers. God was still taking his people through the desert. They could not have made it without him. Everything about the armies and all of those things, the outcomes are still something that God had ordained. There's whether it's 30,000, whether it's 2.5 million, I know that's a huge gulf, but whichever one it is, God is still the God of his people. He is still the covenant God. And it, it doesn't change our interpretation, True. but it's interesting to it, say the it least. Sure, it yeah. sure is. Yeah. Yeah. I, as you, as you
1: conclude on that, those thoughts, I think is 33,000 people. So I try to go back to, cause one of your first, the first uh, things were about how many people were in Egypt and yeah. 33,000 people enough people to cause them terror. If they're 4 million, you know, if it, Egypt has 4.5 point 6 million people. Well,
2: that would be if they added in the Israelites, Egypt would be about like two to 3 million. I gotcha. And uh, 30, I mean, yeah. point is it never lets thirty three thousand people yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. enough to cause that. But also then <laughs> you have to say, well, if, if you need a bigger number to cause more terror in Egypt, then you also have to account how in the world did they cross the red sea Overnight,
2: yeah, with along with their herds 2, and all of their animals that they and, were yeah, shepherding. How and,
1: how low, I don't I don't know how big the Red Sea, how big a swath was was yeah. pulled
2: back. You know, six lane superhighway. Yeah, right? Like
0: the city of Kansas City has it's it's over a million population, isn't
2: it? Hey, you got me. Okay, I think, okay. I, think it, I think it is. You would probably know well,
1: would be in Kansas tourist. Shawnee County is like a hundred and twenty yeah,
0: some thousand. Yeah, I mean, so I'm just thinking about like all just getting all the people of Kansas City.
1: Yeah. Through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In
0: one time. But I mean, God can do that. We have no doubt about sure. it. But uh, yeah, Connor, that was fascinating. <laughs> to, and, some. And it isn't, it to some. It is it is. I can think of by name, th- well, three or five people who I know for a fact are still listening at this point,
1: because this is,
0: this is something I think right it's kind
1: of important because you do have people. I mean, I've, I've met certain people, not a lot of people but are like, I can never believe in a God, in a Bible that would think that overnight you could get 2.5 million people across a little, str- you know, or whatever they would say, yeah. you know, and there's alternatives and there's other ways to think about it that are not unbiblical. Yeah. And I think that's important to kind of admit and, and kind of at least wrestle with to try to figure yeah. out.
0: But yeah. it doesn't change the core of the story. Absolutely not. Right. yeah Yeah. All agree. right. And, yeah. We're jumping into four, numbers four this week. Yes, we're,
2: we're talking about the Kohathites and uh, the fact that they were the ones handling the holy tabernacle elements.
0: They couldn't so. see them, nice. they couldn't touch them, but they could move them. So move them. join us next week for that.
1: Thank you for listening to the TBC Extra Podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We drop an episode every Wednesday, and on the first Friday of each month, we have an extra episode. Extra! Extra! With stories, pastoral teaching, interviews, and more. See you
1: next time, and have a great rest of your week.